Thank you, Jesse. Good morning, church. If you're not there already, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, as we are continuing through this teaching series uh, titled Steadfast, Steadfast Living uh, in the World in which we live today, steadfast. And First Peter, you'll find it there uh, near the end of the Bible. Uh, so if you just start at the back and kind of work your way in, uh, you'll happen upon it. If you hit Hebrews, uh, you've gone just a bit too far. First uh, Peter chapter 4, if you're using one of the Bibles at the chairs, uh, you'll find it on page 1730. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, some of you may not have recognized the, the guy sitting at the piano uh, this morning, but just as a reminder, that is actually Michael Fay's brother, Robert, from Florida. And uh, there was a celebration for Michael Fay, who is turning the big, don't tell anyone, he's turning 50 later this week. And uh, Robert uh, surprised Michael uh, with his appearance today. And so, and what's interesting, something y- y'all need to ask Michael and Robert about their long lost brother story because it is really an incredible uh, story of God's goodness to the two of you and, um, and how they've lived all their lives apart, but yet there's so many similarities between the two of them. And so it's neat. So, Robert, thanks for ministering with us this morning. Happy birthday, Michael Fay, and also Stephen McDonald is celebrating a birthday too today, right? I think so, someplace in here, and so uh, make sure you tell that young guy happy birthday as well. First Peter, well, hopefully you're there. Uh, follow along with me. I'll read uh, starting in verse 1 uh, through verse 11. Peter writes, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they are surprised that you do not join them now in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so for this, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but now live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms And if anyone speaks, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. With the headlines of our 
newspapers and our internet sites with those headlines circulating and the concern of wars and rumors of wars, there seems to be a renewed interest in the end times. Some are even asking questions like, have we reached the end of the world? Could this be it? (laughs) Or maybe the question that believers should ask every day, but maybe are asking more and more, is Jesus coming soon? I would say that all of these are reasonable questions to ask. In fact, these are questions that are not new to us, are not new to us in the last few weeks or few months, but instead these are questions that have been asked for nearly 2,000 years. And in fact, when we talk about the end of the world, I can't help but if you were a child growing up in the 80s or the 90s, the old 1987 song by the secular band, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, right? And you're welcome. You'll be humming that for the rest of the day. That catchy tune that you can't help but think about, right? They too are asking that question in song. It's the end of the world as we know it, they say, and I feel fine. But do you? Maybe, however, the more insightful question to ask is this. What difference will it make if it is the end? Or, how will you spend your time differently at the end? Or we can ask questions, but really the the, the crux of the matter, the crux of the question is, how does that change the way in which you live? All right, if the end of the world were to come in three weeks, and believe me, I am not saying that is the case, okay, so don't take a snippet and, and uh, try to predict that, but I'm just asking a, a rhetorical question. If the end of the world were to come in three weeks, how would it change the way in which you spend your time, right? Some of you might book that dream vacation, Right? I've, got, I've only got a little, little bit of time left. Some of you might empty out your bank account on entertainment and leisure pursuits. Maybe you try to knock off another one of those goals on your bucket list. If the end were to come in a few weeks, you might reach out to long-lost family members and maybe even try to reconcile broken relationships. Or maybe you would be like that guy with the bullhorn on the street corner holding the sign, the end is near. In our scripture passage this morning, Peter is going to bring to our attention the reality of Jesus' soon return. And he uses that phrase in particular there in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. And we're going to learn that when a Christian realizes and truly takes to heart the nearness of Jesus' return, that he will be bound to commit himself or herself to a more focused way of living. Right? If you knew that by midnight this evening you were going to see Jesus face to face, would it not affect the way in which you spend your afternoon? In fact, a powerful incentive for changing how we live should be, in fact, the reality that Christ very well could return before the the end of my sermon. And that, indeed, 
the end of all things is near. That's a phrase that throughout the New Testament and the, and the believers, they, they use that phrase. And, and it's, it's a phrase that, that, that identifies the time period between Jesus' first coming as, a, as the Christ child, as the Messiah there that, we'll be cel- that we're celebrating, entering into that season of Christmas. It's, it begins then at Jesus' first coming and will then conclude when Jesus comes again, when he returns as King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we'll make all things right again and new again. And it's that time period in which we live, this season of grace, where we are invited to trust in Jesus with our hearts and with our lives and to surrender to Him and to live for Him. It's that time period where the end of all things. And so even here in the New Testament, they were believing that Jesus very well could return at any time. And so Peter then, in these verses, he's going to present to us several practical conclusions on how we should indeed live out the remainder of our days anticipating Christ's return. How we as followers of Jesus should should finish our lives here that we should finish well. Now church, I've got only two points in the sermon this morning and some of you right now are thinking, hey, maybe I can get it a little bit in line early at the restaurant, right? He's only got two points, but little do you know on the fourth point or on the, on the second point, I've got four sub points. Uh, so, so we'll see how this goes. The big idea is this, is that we are to glorify God by living with the end in mind. That we are to glorify God by living with the end in mind. Peter, again, he's speaking to a, a group of believers who are suffering. As Jesse has prayed for already, the persecuted church, Peter is speaking, he's addressing those who are suffering physical persecution. Now, there are, very, there are many, many ways in which we suffer. Sometimes we do suffer physical persecution for our faith. Other times we have physical sufferings ailments, weaknesses, cancers, diseases, sickness. So there's a lot of different ways for suffering, and I believe that this is applicable to all of those ways. In fact, it's applicable to whether or not, right, not right now, you might be in a, in a season that you would say is good, like Isaiah described for us, and thank you, Isaiah, for sharing your testimony, right? When, when things are good, we love God, don't we? We love Jesus. But it's like when, when things hit the fan when it all falls apart that's then then that's when our hearts are tempted to turn from the lord but here's what we see is that peter's inviting us even in those times of suffering more importantly in those times of suffering we should remember that jesus is going to one day come and make it all right again and that this time of suffering this season of suffering is but a short amount of time So that's how Peter can say the end of all things is near. Well, let's get on to this first point, shall we? The practical application. What does Peter tell us? He says that we should live for the will of God. That we should live for the will of God in verses 1 through 6. Let's go ahead and look there again, starting at verse 1, as we kind of try to make our way verse by verse through this. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, right, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, 
because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Peter's making a transition, and now he's making the connection between our suffering for the sake of, of righteousness, and he's tying it into our battle against sin. What Peter is diving into in these first six verses of chapter 4 is it's an instruction to pursue holy living that is motivated by Christ's suffering on our behalf. That those who are, and, and he, he says there, especially he says uh, to, to the effect that those who are willing to endure suffering will also be done with sin. You see it there in, in verse 1. What he's, what he's saying is that if you're willing to be persecuted for your faith, then you're probably making daily decisions to leave sin, or hopefully so. Right, a couple quick observations from this verse include the instruction to us to arm yourselves. Right, you see it there. He says, arm yourselves in verse 1. Arm yourselves with an attitude. That word arm yourselves or that phrase is a military command. It's a command to do this without delay. He's, he's telling us, don't wait any longer to leave your sinful tendencies or your, the sinful temptations. He's saying, do this now. Arm yourselves. He gives, he's giving us the picture of a, a heavily armed foot soldier who is well equipped for the fight. Peter's reminding us that we are in a battle against sin. And we can either, we have, we have one of two choices. We can either live according to the will of God, or we can choose to live according to the will of the war, world. He, he, there's no middle ground here. There's no straddling of the fence. Either, Peter is saying, either you are pursuing holiness or you're giving into temptation and sin. And he's, he's telling us, he's saying that those who are willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness will have a different outlook on sin. That if I'm willing to, to suffer for the sake of righteousness, I'm going to take temptation and sin more seriously, and I'm going to choose to be done away, away with sin. Are they perfect? No. But if they're willing to suffer for the sake of their faith, then they're going to have an increased desire to fight against sin and temptation. I want you to hear, hear me on this, right? Every time, and I want, I, I'm so thankful that we've got so many students in here this morning, and also the young people, because especially in this first portion, there's going to be a lot of words to you. I want you to understand that every time we resist temptation, right? How many of you this week, by a show of hands, have been tempted to sin? Let's see those show of hands, all right? Good, all right. Most, yeah, I would say probably all of us. Some of you are trying to figure out, well, do I tell the truth now or do I lie? What, 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 what? There you go. Just get your hand up, right? But every time we resist temptation, every time temptation comes knocking on, our, on the door of our hearts, and every time I say no to that temptation, I become better equipped to say no to that temptation the next time. Each time we conquer sin, it makes us better equipped to face that next attack. In fact, saying no to temptation, like, like do not view, do, don't view sin as just a small matter, right? Don't think, 
well, it's okay. You know, this isn't like a big sin, and this is probably a sin that I could probably get away with, right? My mom or my dad may never find out. My teacher may never know, right? What happens is, is that when you learn to say no to those small, what you might classify as small sins, it's, it's helping equip you to be able to say no to those larger temptations. And we become more, and through that, we become more spiritually mature. And as we grow in spiritual maturity, it helps us to fall into temptation or to choose temptation less and less. And I want you to understand that every decision, hear me on this, Every decision you make against sin matters. Every decision. It prepares us for the next battle. You see, not only is your determination to battle against sin, to pursue holiness, not only is it important for for today, but it's important for the battles that you are going to face tomorrow. And so this is, this is what Peter is getting at. He's saying that Jesus is going to return. And how does, this, how does this affect me today? He's going to say that you should now live for the will of God. Turn from sin. Leave behind the way in which you used to live. Pursue holiness. So let me just give you just a few several examples. When you are tempted, young and old alike, when you are tempted by your phone, when you're tempted and the image, and I'll speak specifically to men, young men, old men, when you are tempted by your phone and the ease of images comes so quickly and even it comes at such an unexpected time, when you're tempted by that, you're presented with a choice. Am I going to step back in that old way of living? Or am I going to throw, or am I, yeah, I'll say, am I going to throw the phone across the room <laughs> and say no to, to temptation? That's a skirmish. That's a battle. That, that Peter says, arm yourselves and be prepared to fight that battle. And young man, When you say no to that sin, when you say no to that temptation, you are experiencing the victory of battle today and are equipping yourself for the next battle that will come. This is the same. The same is true when we withhold from sharing a rumor rumor or a morsel of gossip gossip about another person. Oh, you wouldn't believe what I heard. Did you see that on Facebook? You've got to be kidding me. When, when, when we're tempted to share that with someone else, and we say, no, that doesn't honor my brother or sister in the Lord. If I were to share that, I'm not loving my neighbor well. And when we learn to turn from that and say no to it, what it does is it helps us, it prepares us to be able to say no to it the next day. Or students, when you choose to take the bad grade rather than cheating on the test. When you choose to take the bad grade rather than cheating on the test, you're preparing yourself for greater battles to come. See, Peter's telling us, he says that if you're going to live with the end in mind, 
He says you're going to have to live for the will of God. He's telling us to be done with sin. Continue on in verse 2. It says, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires. He's speaking directly to the believers. Right? He's, saying, he's saying, you do not live the rest of your earthly lives for evil desires, but rather what? For the will of God. In other words, as followers of Jesus Christ, and again, he is speaking to new believers here, those who would have, been, who would have left the old way of living. And what he's doing is he's saying, don't go back to that old way of living. Instead, live with the end in mind. In just a few verses, he's going to say, you'll have to answer for how you live. Jesus is coming back, so prepare yourself. And so he says there's a change of direction in our lives. He says there's going to be a new trajectory. He is saying set your sights on a holy pattern of living from this point on until the end. So this begs to ask the question, church, how are you going to live the rest of your life? Young person, who are you going to live your life for? What habits, young person, are you establishing now that will show themselves, that will bear fruit in years to come? Young person, what is the longing of your heart? Students, do you desire to be faithful to the Lord? Or are you pursuing the desires of the flesh? Peter, this is for you, young person. He's asking the question. He says they do not live the rest of their earthly lives. He's asking the question, how are you going to live the rest of your life? Middle-aged person, how will you live the rest of your earthly lives? Will you live for the fading glories of the world? Or will you live for the eternal glory to one day be shared with Jesus Christ? Middle-aged person, are you going to finally arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ Jesus and his victory over sin? Or are you going to continue living a defeated victim mentality and just say, well, I've struggled with this sin up to this point and I'll just struggle with this sin for the rest of my life. Peter says, you do not live the rest of your earthly lives. Now, I've addressed the young person, I've addressed the, the middle-aged person, and here I am at this quandary. Do I refer to it as an old person, or what do I do? But those of you who are further along in the journey of life. Classics. Thank you, Bill. That's, that's what we'll do. Antique? No, not antiques. The classics. We'll stick with that, right? Let me ask you this question. What will the legacy of the rest of your life be? I'm not asking you what has the legacy of your life been up to this point. I'm saying as you hear this word of instruction from Peter, what will the legacy of the rest of your life be? How are the final years of your life going to be defined? Are you going to sprint hard toward the finish line of holiness or are you going to falter along the way in defeat? Even in these classic years, even in the sunsetting season of life, believer, every decision matters. And in fact, 
these might very well be some of the most defining days of your legacy. That your children and your grandchildren will look up to you and will remember you and say, they finished well. And what's the context that Peter is telling us this? Not in the midst of the good times, but it's the context of suffering. For all of us, Peter is saying, until your final breath, make every effort to live for the will of God. Each of us should take time today to consider and to answer the question, how am I going to live the rest of my life? Verses 3 and 4, it says, this is where Peter continues. He says, for you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, right? He says, you've, you, they lived in debauchery. They live in lust and drunkenness and orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. He says, they're surprised that you, do, that you no longer, that you do not join in them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on them. He's saying there's a change in, there's a change in lifestyle. He's, he's continuing to call us and how, uh, that there should be a change in how we live, that we should leave behind old patterns, old habits, old sinful tendencies. He's saying you have spent enough time living like the world. He says it's time for you to now live for Jesus. He's saying it's time for you now to live for the will of God. Let me speak again, especially to the young person here. There can be an attitude of such that young people can tend to have. They say, I'll get serious about following Jesus when I get older. Right? Maybe have you ever heard that attitude? But right now, I want to experiment a little. I want to test the waters. I want to sow my oats a bit. I want to experience more of the world. I don't want to miss out on maybe what, on all the fun that my buddies might be having in school. And so what happens is the young person can be tempted to push off a commitment to pursuing godliness. And we push the pursuit of holiness further and further down the road. The young person might say, well, when I get older or when I graduate from college, then I'll choose to live for Jesus. Or when I get for my first job or, or if God has in mind for me to get married, when I get married and, and I have children, then I'll live for the will of God. Young person, this is a tragic mistake. It's a tragic mistake because it takes us away from the path that leads us to eternal life. You see, when we live for the will of God, a change in a heart, there's a, a change in the attraction, the attention, right? Our, our friends should notice. Believer, there should be a distinct difference between how you live and how the world lives. There should be. There should be a difference in the music you listen to. There should be a difference in, in, in how you view relationships. There should be a difference in the movies that we go to. There should be a difference. To the world, you should be boring. In their eyes. This is what he says. He says, and, and what, what will happen? He says, they'll heap abuse on you. They'll make fun of you. They'll say things about you when you're not around. They might even say things to you when you are around. The point being made here is that suffering for being a believer is a sign that believers are indeed on the path of following God's will and not the path of being ruled by sin. 
He is saying that when they heap abuse on you because you live for the will of God, it affirms, it affirms your status as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says, but they will have to give account to him. Now, who's the they in there? He is saying the they are those people who are of the world, who, who do not follow Jesus Christ, who make fun of you for following Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He says they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It says, for this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. He's speaking about those people who heard the gospel, who, good, who heard the good news of Jesus Christ, who believed in it and have now died. All right, he's not talking about going to the graveyard or the cemetery and preaching to the gravestones here. All right, he's speaking about a past, um, a past opportunity that was, that was taken advantage of. And so Peter, he's adding a, another motivation to holy living. And what is that motivation that we will one day have to answer for our lives? In this verse, there's a relief for the suffering believer. And, and that relief is that God will have the final say over those who heap abuse on you. Right? How can we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Those who are heaping abuse, those who make fun of us, those who do mean things toward us because we follow Jesus Christ. How is it that we are then able to love them and pray for them and care for them even when they are cruel to us? How are we able to do that? Because we know that God is the final judge and we leave that to him. We have, in this season, have been called to be men and women filled with grace and mercy. And so what Peter is saying is that they will have to one day answer for how they live their lives. And the same is true for all of us. And that's why today is a good day to make a decision to pursue holiness for the rest of your life. To forget what's behind and to push forward to what's ahead. Well, we've made it now to the second point. Live for the benefit of others. How are we to live? It's the end of the world as we know it, right? It's the end of time, he says. How do we live? He says, first, we live for the will of God. We leave behind sinful pursuits and sinful passions and we pursue holiness. Live for the will of God. And next in these verses, 7 through 11, he's going to say live for the benefit of others. Whoa, live for the benefit of others. Continue with the theme of how to live in the end. How we should live in anticipation of Christ's return. Christ, uh, Peter's now shifting the focus from simply living according to the will of God, a vertical direction, and now he's adding to it the practice of living for the benefit of other people. From this point, as we think of the rest of our lives and the soon return of Jesus Christ, what Peter is telling us is that our daily practice should not be to live for ourselves, but instead to live for our neighbors. Right? We might think, well, wait a second, but, but if my time is short here, if my time is limited, wouldn't, wouldn't I want to kind of hoard everything and, and live for myself, right? Get all the pleasure that I can, right? Get, get, get all those things knocked off my bucket list as I can. Peter says, no, instead we should turn our attention and to give our lives sacrificially to those around us. We see here in verse 7, and, and we'll kind of hit a few sub points. I'll try to identify when you can. I, I, they won't be on the screen, but just listen to them, all right? He says, verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near, so what should you do? That word therefore then takes us into the practical application. He makes us a true statement. 
Here's how it applies. He says, therefore, be what? Alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Church, I wonder, do you ever find yourself so busy during the day that you fail to have time to pray? <laughs> you ever find yourself there? Right, where you look, you look at your, your daily task list and, and you, you jump right out of bed. Well, maybe you roll out of bed and you get started on, on knocking off those, those to-dos. And it's almost as if oftentimes the first thing, the first activity that is sidelined or forgotten is prayer and Bible reading. All right, well, catch what Peter is saying. He's saying that the end of all things is near. What, what is he saying? He's saying there's a limited amount of time remaining. He says the clock is ticking. Peter is saying our days are numbered. Jesus very well could return today. And what does he say? He says, now get about the business of praying. He says we're to have a watchfulness and a seriousness to our prayers. These are prayers that are not offered in a petty fashion, but prayers that are of great intention and effort. The instruction here is to guard your prayer life, to make that a priority, even when time is limited. He's saying that one of the most important practices when the end is drawing near is for you to pray. Right? This goes against our natural bend though, doesn't it? Right? We're taught to be efficient. We're taught to be people who produce we're taught to be successful people. We're taught to make things happen on our own. We're taught to have, have stuff to show for our time and our energy. It would seem that if the end is drawing near and if, and, and, and if time is of the end essence, the tendency is going to be that we should shift into a higher gear of doing more and more and more to run harder and faster in the hamster wheel of production, to make the most of the time left, to make it all count. Right? We look at those who have climbed the corporate ladder of success, those who are wealthy, who own lots of things and have accumulated lots of stuff. We look at them and we think that they finally arrived and we think if I only have a short amount of time, how, I'm, how am I going to make my mark in that way? What Peter is saying, he is saying that those who have failed to pray are drunk with their own success and have lost touch with God's reality that's why he uses those words be on alert and have sober minds so that you can pray our greatest ministry is that of prayer above all then so so that's the first practice right how do i live for the benefit of others i am praying for other people and it's a priority in my life. That's why we gather on the first Wednesday of the month as a church to pray together. That's why every Sunday morning from 9 to 9.30 a.m., the Dills are faithfully in that room praying for each and every one of you. And the, the invitation is there for all of us to join them in that prayer room. So that's the first practice, right? Right? We live for the benefit of others by praying for them. Verse 8 then, he goes, uh, he goes on. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. The next way in which we should live in the end days, the way in which we live, is, uh, the way in which we live for the benefit of others is, is by loving other people differently. 
right? Think of it this way. As it becomes harder and harder to remain steadfast in the world, as the pressure of the world seems to draw in closer and closer and closer, and as the persecution against the church increases, it's going to become more and more necessary for us as believers to live in a tight-knit community. That's what he's describing. He is saying that as followers of Jesus Christ, you are going to have to stick together You're going to have to gather so that you can encourage one another because you will need one another as you walk through seasons of suffering. But what happens is that the more you live in community with other believers, the higher likelihood you're going to sin against other people, right? The more, right? You're not going to have any problem sinning against other people if you fail to hang out with people, right? You'll be like have a squeaky clean record. But when you hang out with other people, what happens? You start you say things that, that you probably shouldn't have said. Or you make jokes about people that you probably shouldn't have made. Or you start doing things that just kind of grate on the nerves of other people. And that's where he says, right, if, if we're living for the, with the end in mind, if Jesus Christ is returning and as, a follow, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're living in a tighter-knit community, here's what he tells us. He says, let the love that you have for one another be quick to forgive. And he's also introducing to us this idea of allow love to cover over a multitude of sins. Right, think of it. I actually thought for our next road trip, I'm going to make this our theme verse. Because what happens is nothing highlights the sins of a family than like being in a car for five to eight hours. What he's telling us is when the person sitting behind us has the tendency to kick our seat, whether they're doing it on purpose or not, love, right? Can I get a witness here, right? Like when your kids are growing taller than you are, they're, they're just going to have to do that. Not kick it, but you're going to feel the knee in the back of your, sh- in, in your back. What happens is you allow the love that you have to just look past that and to say, you know what? I could really make a big deal out of that, but it really doesn't matter. That's what he's telling us is that as a church, he is saying, it's this practice of forbearance. Forbearance. It's different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is when someone acknowledges their sin and they come and they, they, they say, will you forgive me? I, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And yes, we forgive. But forbearance is kind of that gray area, that, that, that middle ground, where it's not that they're necessarily committing a sin against me, but at times they just grate on my nerves and it, it just kind of gets on me a little bit forbearance that's the beauty of forbearance is you say you know what i'm 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 just not going to make a big deal about it brothers and sisters in the lord i can't tell you how many churches are split because they make a big deal about nothing and peter says as we anticipate jesus return as we experience suffering together love each other he says pray Love each other deeply. Learn to forgive. Learn to look, look past. Learn to be okay with it. And then he goes on, verse 9. What does he say? He says, offer hospitality. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is another practice for the end of time. 
right? It's the practice of ho- offering hospitality. I touched on this a few weeks ago, right? I told you, I said, I said if you got a spring poking up in your, in, in your couch and you're embarrassed about it, throw a book on it and then throw a Tony's pizza in the oven and invite people over. You see, a home can never be happy when it's selfish. And when we fail to practice hospitality, we have made our homes all about ourselves and not about serving other people. He says that join in this radical practice of our day and it's the practice of opening our homes, sharing our tables, pouring out our lives for the benefit of other people. The Christian life is to be about giving yourself to hospitality. Because it reminds us of the hospitality of Jesus who welcomes us in and invites us. Right? What's that verse there in Revelation where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock and and." Whoever invites me in, what does Jesus, right? right? It's, it's that picture of hospitality. What does Jesus say he wants to do? He wants to sit at the table and have a meal. And that's what we should be doing. Hospitality, like saying no to sin, hospitality also is a muscle that must be stretched little by little, right? You, you will not be, if you've never practiced hospitality, do not try to throw a seven-course meal the first time you, st- you step your toe into it. You'll be discouraged. And you'll never offer, offer hospitality again. It very well might be the practice of hospitality is just going and having a conversation at your fence line with your neighbor. And little by little offering it to them. And inviting them in. Church, we are entering into a great season in which we can practice hospitality. It's the holiday season. Offering hospitality with one another. Look around this room and say, this holiday season, how am I going to be intentional in practicing hospitality? This is not an instruction just to Enos Lindner or other people who excel in the area of hospitality. Sorry, Enos, that was a compliment to you. This is an instruction to all of us to open our homes to one another This holiday season, how are you going to look around the room and say, I'm going to invite that person over to sit at my Thanksgiving table. I'm going to invite that person over and we're going to share hot cocoa and cookies. How are we going to do that? That's end of the world practice. Giving yourself, it's hard work, giving yourself to the other person. Let's continue Try to sprint here to the finish line. Verse 10, he says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve other people. There it is. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Why do I feel fine? Because I'm giving myself away. How as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, God has given each of us different gifts, different talents, different abilities, and we should use it for the benefit of other people, that we should spend ourselves for them. Verse 11 then, he says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. That your words. Think about this, church. Next time you're tempted to send that text 
or to post that post on, facial, on, on social media. Ask yourself, are these the very words of God? Do these words benefit the listener? Do these words point people to Jesus? Or are these selfish words? That's an end time practice. We live for the will of God. We live for the benefit of other people. And in the end times, as we gather with Christian brothers and sisters, we are going to find ourselves practicing this more and more and more. And why? So that ultimately God can be glorified. Church, would you pray with me? Father, in these moments, I want to pray over our congregation. God, I know uh, for some, these are easy truths to hear. God, I also know that there are others who, when they hear this, it's hard to believe. Maybe because uh, right now they are under the uh, cloud of suffering. And God, these are hard sermons for me to preach. Um, Father, I pray for your spirit to tend to the hearts of those who hear this and say, I don't know if I can do that. God, I pray that um, you would help them in this season. Father, I know I find myself often failing uh, to have words of comfort because we understand that some here are suffering deeply. And God, uh, even for some of us, the end might be near of our time in this world, not because of Christ's return, but because you might be calling us home. And I, I think probably many of us here have friends who aren't represented in this congregation who are experiencing suffering too. And so Peter writes these words, God, to us, and it's hard. It is hard, Lord. It's hard to pray. It is tempting to try to get the most out of the pleasures of this world. God, it's hard to give ourselves away when at times maybe we feel like we've been given the raw end of the deal. God, my words will not be sufficient, but I'm thankful that your spirit is. And more as well, God, your grace is also sufficient. And so, Lord, I just pray as I stand here. Um, 
well aware of names and faces who hear this. God, that uh, you would minister to their hearts. Because I think we struggle to do so at times. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Who does hear our prayers. Amen.